The Maharlika Investment Fund will weaken government banks, warns Enrico P. Villanueva, a chief risk consultant and a senior lecturer of economics at the University of the Philippines, Los Baños. In this B-side episode, the first of 2023 and the second on the much-criticized Maharlika Investment Fund, Mr. Villanueva tells Business World reporter Keisha B. Taasan that the fund still raises several red flags even if the Government Service Insurance System, or GSIS, and the Social Security System, or SSS, are no longer participating. So currently, the bill creating the MIF is among the Senate's top priorities come 2023. And this came as President Ferdinand R. Marcos Jr. certified the bill as urgent, despite public protests. So what is exactly the MIF and why is the idea so attractive to our lawmakers? What are the supposed benefits of the investment fund? To be honest, I have the same questions. I don't know why it's so attractive to them. Oh, well, I first read about it, I think that's just a few days after it was filed in Congress. For the purpose, it seems that's one of the red or yellow flags, I would say, I have about the bill because the goal is not so clear, to be honest. It keeps changing. The first time I read it is about good financial returns, better financial returns. So I'm in banking, so I thoroughly understand that. But I also know that is good for banking, but it doesn't necessarily be good for government. So that's one of the goals. So is it the pursuit of financial return, just like we do in banking and financial industries? Is it development-oriented? Because there was also a quote from the president saying that he wants to do this because supposedly he cannot get the funds from Congress, which to be honest is quite hard to believe because he has power, some sort of influence over the Congress. And actually, one of one proof of that influence is that when he certified this bill as urgent, it was so hurriedly passed. So I cannot understand why he would comment that he cannot get funding for things like dams, etc. And to be honest, we've created dams in the past using various ways of financing. So why do we need to create a fund now? So th- those are the things that keep changing. So is it for better financial returns? Is it for development? If it's for development, we've actually been able to finance it. And we have alternative ways of financing it. And we even have a different corporation like the National Development Corporation whose sole purpose is really to finance development projects like dams. <laughs> Actually, if you look at their sites, they have projects like dams, solar power. So you don't know now what is really the goal. And that's that's quite a flag for me <laughs> as a risk manager. And then initially they were referring to the Singapore and Norway as a model for the social wealth fund. But it's not really the right model for us because the Norway model, for instance, is about having a surplus. They have a surplus coming from oil exports, which we do not have. So definitely that doesn't apply to us. Uh, so it's not a wealth fund itself because we're not really wealthy in that sense in the Norway sense, for instance, or not even in the Singapore sense. So I guess because of those feedback, it has morphed actually into an investment fund. So from a Maharlika wealth fund, which we don't really have, that's morphed to a Maharlika investment fund. Now, in the history of sovereign wealth funds, we do start with a surplus as a source of wealth. And then later on, there are other things like stabilization, but mainly it's called arising from a surplus. It was only recently that you have things pursuing investment. 
investment as a goal. So in the Southeast Asian region, those countries that are doing this are Malaysia, Indonesia, and ourselves right now. So we, we're now already on MIF, Maharlika Investment Fund. For Indonesia, it's very new. It was just started in uh, last 2021. So there's not much feedback yet on the Indonesian model. They're not using a surplus to build up the fund. They started with some seed money from the government, and they were trying to attract foreign partners who will finance development. Okay, so that's the model. We don't know yet because it's too early if that will succeed or not. Now, what we have as an, an actual model would be the Malaysian model. It's also a development fund oriented. The one MDB, one Malaysia Development Fund Berhad. Well, I, I suppose many people have heard that it, it was embroiled in that scandal. So it started as a development fund, but eventually it got mired into a lot of scandals. So there was embezzlement of funds. There was uh, bribery. There was money laundering. There was false declaration of statements and also mispricing of bonds. So many things happened there. But it's not a very good example. Just last night, I was reading about the Malaysian case. What happened? Why is it a failure of control and accounting? And there were many things that are parallel to the Philippines. So the goal is initially development, like a Maharlik investment fund. But it didn't really pursue development. It pursued something else, which is a personal enrichment by the government officials. So just to sum up on the goal is very hazy. So it's not very clear to people. I'm not even sure if it's clear to the House of Representatives when they voted for it. What exactly are we trying to do? It's a hodgepodge, to be honest. So under the latest draft bill, the major source of the capital for the MIF would be the two government banks, Land Bank of the Philippines and Development Bank of the Philippines, as well as profits and dividends from the Banco Central ng Pilipinas. So right now, sir, what are your thoughts on the current version of the bill? I think this is not as well discussed as the effect on the pension funds. But as a banker, I'd like to emphasize also the impact of this on these development banks. It requires getting 50 billion from both banks. It was just about 25 billion from DBP and 50 billion from Land Bank. Now, because they have removed the pension funds, they're now getting double from 25 to 50 billion from DBP. That's a huge amount of money relative to this capital of DBP. I'm referring to the risk cap. There's a there's a concept of risk capital for banks. It's basically the amount of capital that you can use to cover potential losses arising from loan defaults, from market fluctuations, etc. So all banks are required to have that some form of risk capital. For DBP, the risk capital is just about 75 billion there. This is just approximation, roughly about 75 billion. So if you take away 50 billion of risk of capital or money from DBP, that's a big blow to them. And actually, I did some pencil pushing. I used to do this in my previous job as a risk officer and a capital adequacy assessment officer. And my initial estimates is that their capital adequacy ratio will drop below the mandated, how do you say it? There's like a legislated mandated capital adequacy ratio for banks. For Philippines, it's about 10%, meaning your capital should be able to cover at least 10% of the value of your risk assets. The assumption there is that your risk assets can fluctuate in value by as much as 10%. You should have enough capital to cover at least 10% fluctuation. So that's the idea there. DVP will fall below 10%. And that's the capital adequacy ratio would be the single most important indicator of bank strength. So if you have a bank which will be go below that, that's dangerous. A lot of banks have went under through the years globally. And that's why those measures were set up precisely to, to make sure that the banks are strong enough to withstand all of these things. But here we are subjecting this 
forced contribution from the government banks and in the process making them weaker. And I don't understand why we have to make them weaker. For And these are development banks. If we're for development, we should make these banks stronger, not weaker. As a matter of fact, it was only in 2015, 2016, just about five or six years ago, they infused almost a little below 50 billion okay, to land bank, precisely because they want land bank to pursue more development objectives. Uh, so what are we trying to do? You know, we're moving one step in one direction and moving back the other direction. Do we really want to pursue development financing or are we trying to do something else? And that's one of the things that are difficult. Uh, land bank is bigger, so the, their capital adequacy ratio will fall significantly, but they would still be within uh, the required minimum. But it's GDP who, which will be very much affected because it is smaller. And also for both banks, there's a liquidity impact there. So they're trying to get 50 billion in liquid assets. So more, more likely it's in cash or in very uh, liquid bonds. So I do not have the numbers because I'm not an insider there to be able to see how it will be affected. But for sure, there will be some impact there. So I don't know if they've actually looked into the things that I was talking about in terms of liquidity and capital adequacy and even leverage. The other thing is leverage ratio. Leverage ratio is basically the bank's dependence on borrowings. So you have capital supposedly to finance your business, but you can also borrow uh, from the industry, from the public. The amount of your dependency on borrowing is measured by the leverage ratio. So if you're highly leveraged, you're borrowing so much compared to your capital. So if you have a lower capital, your leverage ratio will also worsen. You'll be more highly leveraged and more dependent on borrowings, which is not also good for bank stability. Now, there is a plan to exempt these banks from these prudential ratios. I think that's not a good plan. Remember, these ratios were set because for prudential reasons. You want to be prudent about the management of the financial system. And that's, those are global ratios, meaning across the globe, banks are observing these ratios. And yet Philippines will accept these development banks from these ratios. Okay, so on paper, you're not breaching anything. This BBP and Landmark are not breaching any prudential ratios. But in reality, they are. So it's like we're obfuscating the quality of these banks. And, and that's sad because these banks have also been used in the past for different reasons. So they were made to bail out certain private firms, uh, made to absorb losses. But definitely when 50 billion is extracted from them, there's 50 billion loss in terms of development financing. That could have gone to agriculture, to uh, rural development, to small and medium enterprises, but it's going somewhere else. Aren't we for development? So why are we taking away development financing from this? And this is a proven model for development financing the banks. And yet you're taking away money from disproven uh, modes of development financing into a an unproven Maharlika investment fund. We don't even know if it will actually pursue development the way it said it would be. So that's a big question mark. In 2018 or 2019, there was supposedly a central bank act, the BSP app, saying that the capitalization of BSP should be 200 billion so that it can be stronger in terms of its modern day uh, functions. We're not yet at 200 billion. The pure capital, paid up capital BSP is about 50 billion. They have some surpluses, but if, even if if you add those surpluses, it's still about 136 billion. So we're still far away from the desired 200 billion, which was legislated by Congress itself. Supposedly, that, that build up to 200 billion will come from the dividends of BSP. So before BSP would remit dividends to the national government, with that amendment of the BSP Act, the dividends will be used to increase the capitalization to up to 200 billion. And only after they have reached 200 billion will the dividends go again to national government. Supposedly, that's 
the plan. And that was the law, supposedly. And now they're changing that again. Congress, just about a few years after. They're saying now through this Maharlika, because they want to do this Maharlika investment fund, for the next two years, 100% of the dividends will go to the fund so that it will have a seed money. And then after two years, it can go back to rebuilding the capital. Imagine that. So they have they place more importance in setting up this fund rather than uh, building up the capital of BSP. You, you know, every year the global economy expands and yet the capital is constant. So you're making the BSP weaker in that sense. Okay, it's a good thing. For the BSP, it's a good thing that at least they're already talking about dividends because earlier, in the very early part of the bill deliberations, we have Finance Secretary Jokno. Jokno, by the way, is a former BSP governor saying that we should take away some of the gross international research from BSP and use it for the fund. That's a no-no. I cannot understand why he is saying that. In the first place, BSP has its own balance sheet. You cannot simply just pluck away reserves from BSP and put it in a fund. Those assets are financed by some liabilities okay, in the BSP's balance sheet. And those assets are not... He's talking about 5.5 trillion pesos of gross international reserves. And he, he says that if he can just get about 25% of the 5.5 trillion, then we should be okay. But the thing is, you cannot just take away one point. 25 trillion of gross international reserves and put it in the fund because that money is being financed by something else on the liability side of the balance sheet. And that money is actually financed by deposits of the private sector. So the private sector is, to be honest, it's rich. So they have money in the banks and the excess money in the banks are placed with BSP. So you have billions of private bank money placed with BSP. If you take away those assets, then you have to reduce the private sector deposit to BSP. And if you get those deposits from BSP and put it into the financial system, you will have a lot of money floating in the financial system. And that's bad for inflation. You know, if you have excess money floating around in the economy, that money will end up purchasing goods and services, which will increase prices. So in short, that act of removing these served supposedly from BSP would actually be contrary to the mandate of BSP to control inflation. So you do not want to do that because it hampers the function of BSP. So let BSP do its job. If its balance sheet is just like that, it's for a reason because that's the level of balance sheet is the one that will support the fight against inflation. So it's a good thing that finally the thinking about the reserves is, is gone. They have now focused on just the dividends. But I hope Congress at least honors its original law of increasing capitalization before doing something else. After increasing capitalization, fine, you can do whatever you want with the remittance of dividends to the national government. Anyway, that's the, the normal arrangement. But let's not dilly-dally on laws because it's also not good from an outsider perspective. If you want to sell this fund to the outsiders, it must be built on good terms, not on sketchy terms. As we came from the pandemic, and as you said, the Maharlika Investment Fund might affect banks and the BSP negatively. Do you think the government banks and the BSP could handle it, given that we just came from a pandemic as we come into 2023? What is the worst case scenario that could happen? Uh, worst case, definitely there's reduced lending to development projects. That's a, a sure ball thing. 50 billion money out, then that's 50 
50 million money lost. Right now, we're coming from a pandemic, so more likely the loan demand is tempered or the actual loan granted to the industry or to the development projects is not as high as it would have been under normal times. But as we recover, there should be more demand for loans. So the loan demand will pick up, not just for DVB, but actually across all the banks as business picks up. However, the supply of money of development financing would be lower because of this redistribution of funds from the development bank to MIS. So that will be, I think that's one of the worst thing that can happen because these banks were supposedly done for development financing. And yet it cannot do its mandate because of that forced contribution. Uh, with a weaker capital base, I hope nothing happens with uh, DBP in terms of a default or market downturn because otherwise it, it's in a weaker position to absorb these losses. So hopefully nothing. Of course, I'm a risk manager, so I think of the worst. It can happen. I just hope it doesn't happen. The worst case, which is, I don't know, low probability, uh, but it's still possible that uh, there will be a big loan default, which it cannot absorb, or there will be a market downturn, which will go against it. Um, for instance, if they have a high a bond position, a big bond position, if the interest rates are going up, that's bad for the market value of the bond, their bond position. So I hope they do not have that much bond position in their trading account because that will be instantaneously reflected as a deterioration in value. So those are the things I foresee, but I'm hoping we don't have to even go there because we were actually prepared for it. So that's the worst thing that can happen. But I hope the government sees to it that there's still that possibility and hopefully respect actually the prudential measures. And you mentioned earlier that it was initially planned that the MIF would tap into the foreign reserves of the BS. And I remember this part exactly because I wrote this story a few weeks back that Marquina City Representative Stella Kimbo said that with the depreciation of the peso, it became a profit-making occasion for the BSP because it generated a windfall in foreign exchange gains when it sold dollars to support the peso. So what are your thoughts on using these profits? Do you think it's stable or is it a long-term thing or a short-term thing? Definitely there's some profit. Profits there. Windfall, yeah, you can say it because there's like a sudden reversal, not due to our policies, it's more due to the US policies, to be honest. So, yes, there, there were some gains in fairness to uh, Representative Stella Kimbo's uh, statement. Now, how big is it? I don't know because th these are the things that are not public, but it can be significant. But all of this actually redound to the surplus of any profits would eventually go to a capital surplus and then they can either be retained as retained earnings or remitted as dividends. So whatever profits that were or FX gains gotten from this uh, reversal of the exchange rate, this should redound into income and eventually as dividends. So yes, those dividends can contribute to the fund, but I'll just go back to my earlier statement. I was just really hoping that they would first capitalize BSD before they use it for something else. And you mentioned earlier that the government banks and the BSB were previously used. Can you uh, storytell that? What happened back in the past for government banks or especially the BSB? How was it used to accommodate our losses in terms of economic losses? Sir? From the main sources I have of this would be a Buchanko's. I think there were two Philippine Star articles. One with Buchanko saying that there was like misdeclaration of forex reserves 
reserves for BSP. Uh, on paper, it's saying that we have significant foreign reserves, but in reality, there's no more foreign reserves. At that time, we actually have import dollar rationing. We have so little dollars, we have to ration out our dollars. I remember this also that importation was very hard. I remember this as a child because unlike now, we're in, we enjoy imported chocolates wherever. We can even buy it from 7-Eleven. Back then, it's very hard to get chocolates, kisses. You can only get it from Cash and Carry, from Sue Dick or Clark because the Americans are there. It's very hard because we really have very little dollars. Now, why did we have very little dollars? There were a variety of factors. One of them is that the fact that the exchange rate was fluctuating at those times. And therefore, that those create the exchange rate fluctuation created a loss for some of the private firms because they would be importing and therefore whatever exchange rate fluctuation can go against them. What happened was that they're like what you call forward covers. It's you peg now the price at which you will import or exchange your or, or price at which you will buy dollars. So they pegged those, they did these forward transactions to peg the prices. The market value went against them. What happened is that the BSP ended up absorbing all of these FX losses of private firms. Now, BSP has no business engaging in private sector activities. And yet, it was made to absorb this foreign exchange losses. That was written in the article of Butchakoy. And then about the FX position, the real FX position, I think it was Cesar Virata and Jaime Laya who went to New York trying to ask for the bankers in New York for more foreign exchange. And they were flabbergasted when they were told that, you know, you do not actually have this much FX position. Imagine that, the high officials of the government being told that, you know, you do not actually have real reserves in your central bank. And they were kind of humiliated at that time. And it was also audited by SGV. And indeed, it was showing that there were fake foreign exchange reserves that were really deficient in terms of FX reserves. Or simply because we tried to accommodate all of this private sector and absorb all of their losses. And how was the independence of the BSP strengthened after that? What happened in the 1980s that strengthened the independence of the BSP? Okay, there are certain restrictions. So BSP is not supposed to dabble in private enterprises. In its charter, there's a prohibition. BSP cannot invest in development financing. This is part of development financing. So that's how we kind of learned supposedly from the old CB experience. That's why when there was this talk about either getting the reserves or asking BSP to contribute, that's a red flag again because it's a violation of the charter. And supposedly we should have learned. <laughs> so haven't we learned from the experience? So this basically draws memories of those 1980 things. And these are not just cited by local Filipino journalists and researchers. Even abroad, this is recognized that the central bank was bankrupted and that it was doing things beyond its monetary mandate. For instance, I, I saw a paper by a certain Japanese member of the monetary board of Bank of Japan. He was talking about monetary independence of the central bank. And one of the things that he looked, he cited was the Philippines. So here is a case where in the fiscal arm, which is basically the fit finance department is intervening with the independence of BSP. And in the process, the BSP failed to do its mandate. So in the process, the BSP bankrupted and it also failed to do its inflationary control mandate. So we were cited by a uh, Japanese. So yeah, we should have learned from, from that experience, supposedly. So do you think, sir, that the MIF that we're creating now is kind of a threat to BSP's independence? Now in the stated forms, not. Because there's some changes. 
So thankfully, that's good because it's just only through the dividends. So we're not tinkering with the balance sheet. We're not tinkering with the GIR, the gross international resources. Thank, thank God. But what was scary before this was that like the attempts to undermine, for instance, the central bank governor. Their articles portraying the central bank governor as something that's not cooperative, which is bad. I mean, you know, the central bank governor is simply doing his job of protecting the independence of BSP. And yet you're portraying him as something uncooperative and not part of the economic team. His role in the economic team is to be independent. So do not chide him for being independent. Actually, the role of finance is to finance development, not to finance development out of the pockets of government banks and even central bank or even the pension funds. So so yeah, fortunately that stopped. And I think part of it is because eventually it was relegated to the dividends. So I guess Professor Medalla is kind of realistic enough to accept. Okay, so at least it's more independent now compared with tinkering with GIR or making BSP directly invest in a fund. You've mentioned the worst case scenario that could happen. You've mentioned things that could happen based on what happened with 1MDB. Now, what do you think are the safeguards that should be in place to make MIF work into something that could benefit us and not weaken or hinder us? What do you think the lawmakers should look into more? One would be not make it politicized by coming up with another name. The Maharlika Kanae is very politicized. So we don't want uh, our fund to be tainted with something. Uh, if I may quote the then president, there should not even be a whiff of corruption attached to it. So we have the Maharlika unit, a guerrilla unit associated with the then former president Marcos, the senior Marcos, which was discredited by the U.S. government. So we don't want that our fund to be associated with something that's fake or discredited. So we want to unpoliticize it. You know, that was also what Sanders saying. Let's not politicize it. So let's not politicize it by using a more neutral name. And this is this one. And then the second would be revamp the board. So let's make it follow the Santiago principles. The bill is saying that we are adhering to the Santiago principles, but it's not really adhering to the Santiago principles. Part of the Santiago principles is that there should be separation of ownership of the fund from the management of the fund. So if the owner is the government and some of it's, let's say, DBP, LBP, government banks, then let them be not part of the board. Because right now they're part of the board. Let the board be a different set of people. I think right now the board is 15 and about 9 or 10 of that is under the umbrella of the Ministry of Finance. Chairman is the Secretary of Finance. Then you have the LDP president, the DBP president, as sitting as directors. And then I think you have six directors corresponding to the owners of the fund, or basically LBP national government. So all of those directors are under the influence of the Department of Finance. So that becomes very political from the start. And we don't want that. That's one of the Santiago principles. We don't want to politicize the board. So there has to be more entry of private sector representatives. It's good that they kind of put it there. They have like five independent directors out of the 15, but it's really not the majority. So the majority is still controlled by by the Department of Finance. And it's not even controlled by different aspects of the government, let's say the NEDA or DTI. It's mainly the Department of Finance. So there's so much concentration of power and influence on the Secretary of Finance. So I think that should be re-examined, the board composition. Make it more transparent and professionalized. The other is like what I mentioned, maybe at the start, remove the capability to issue debt because that can be abused. And maybe for the unlisted corporations, either take it away altogether at the start or put more restrictions to it. So define exactly what 
kind of unlisted so equity firms are we allowed to. Otherwise, it can end up being like the Malaysian case where the funds are being channeled to shell corporations. Okay, And then make sure that the watchdogs are actually, corporate watchdogs are actually capable of doing their mandate. So make it more independent. For instance, they should have a separate reporting. In the board, like in banks, for instance, or financial corporations, the auditors, the head of audit and the head of risk management, do not report to the president of the corporation, for instance. They report to independent directors. So there's an independent audit committee at the board and an independent risk management committee at the board to make it more independent because the auditor and the risk manager should have freedom to say what they need to say and freedom to contradict the line management. And you can only do that if you're reporting to someone else. Say that with uh, from experience, I'm a risk officer. I wouldn't be able to function if I'm reporting to a president. Because I cannot say, Mr. President, we're doing the wrong thing. I would have to report that to another chain. In banks, I we would be reporting to a risk committee, a director. The independent directors will just discuss it at the board level. So independence. As we conclude, do you have anything else to add? Maybe about the timing of it. We've already mentioned that this is not a wealth fund, so we don't necessarily have to have it. Now, the concept of a development fund, it's really not tested, so we cannot say that we are obligated to do it. So I'm hoping the government will consider, is this really the way to do it? Uh, for instance, there was like study on why countries create a social wealth fund. So the usual answer is about surplus wealth. And then the other answer that's not related to surplus wealth is about a political mean. And it's actually a bad reason because part of the analysis of economists or finance people would be some sovereign wealth funds were created for political means to extract wealth. And these are normally associated with autocratic regimes with undemocratic practices. I Hopefully, we're not in that realm. If after re-examining, we feel that there's a need for it, is it the proper timing? You know, we have better things to do and focus on like inflation. We're not doing something about the onions and the vegetables and whatever. Recreating research institute for onions. Come on. That's not the way to do it. Let's focus on the more basic problems first. And then if we really want to do this, let's hire consultants for this. Like the World Bank is offering their help to build, well, first to assess if we need it. And if we need it, then how should we build it? So if they're serious about it, you know, there are good ways to do it. One last point. We've had a history of scandals in the Philippines. And there's also a very low level of trust in this age of disinformation. So uh, I think this kind of funds is best done at a time when there's a higher level of societal trust. Because we're talking about the people's money here and controls on how to deal with the people's money. So maybe it's not the right time. Maybe at some point when things have stabilized and things are better in terms of information and societal trust, then we can pursue this. And that concludes another episode of B-Side. Once again, you heard Enrico P. Villanueva, a chief risk consultant and a senior lecturer of economics at the University of the Philippines, Los Baños, talking to Business World reporter Keisha B. Taasan about the Maharlika Investment Fund. The bill is still confused about its goals, says Mr. Villanueva, who says that developmental returns are very different from financial returns. He asks the question, why divert developmental funding from banks, which are proven, to an unproven Maharlika investment 
investment fund. For a worst case scenario, take a look at what happened to Malaysia's 1MDB, a sovereign wealth fund that was described as, quote, the largest kleptocracy case to date, end quote. This B-side episode was recorded remotely in December 2022. It was produced by Joseph Emmanuel L. Garcia and me, Samuel Marcelo. Thanks for listening and may 2023 be kinder to all of us.